Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 13. The word of the Lord reads, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, and immutable word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy word. And we thank you for your spirit who teaches us. Father, we ask now that you would help our minds to be fixed upon your word, that you'd help our hearts to receive your word and our wills to be bent towards your will, to be conformed to yours. Father, we ask that you would limit the distractions that cause our minds to, to race to and fro and instead to be fixed upon Christ this morning. And we pray these things in his glorious name. Amen. Please be seated, church. I cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. How many of you remember saying that as a child? Three of you. Okay. <laughs> really drove that one home really well. How about I pinky promise? Anybody practice that one? A couple more of you. Maybe you've said, I swear, I, I give you my word. The question is, why do people have to go to such great lengths to try to convince somebody else that they're actually telling the truth or that they will fulfill what they have said? Well, the reason flat out is because people are liars, and they don't keep their word. Have you ever had somebody not keep their word to you in something they said they would do, and they didn't keep their word? I would say that we all have had somebody do that in our lives. They failed to keep their word, and for some of us, we've experienced that so often from others that it becomes hard for us to trust people at their word. But of course, if we slow down and we take a look in the mirror and we examine our own lives to see if we've ever given somebody our word and didn't pull through on that word or changed our minds, we would find surely plenty of examples where we too failed to keep our word. So my point this morning is not to point out the sin of lying and have you feel convicted about lying this morning. That is not my point at all, but it's one of the effects that come from those who don't keep their word. It breaks trust. And this is what I want to drive home this morning. 
when a person is known as somebody that doesn't keep their word, that person is not somebody to be trusted. They need to go to great lengths to try to convince somebody, no, no, this time, this time I'm telling the truth. That this time is somehow different. They say things like, no, I'm telling the truth. I'm being honest. You ever hear people lead with this? Can I be honest with you? You ever stop and think about that? What does that mean that you are usually, typically dishonest with me? Why this time you lead with, can I be honest? Here's the reality. Every single person is capable of lying. Capable of not fulfilling their word. Capable of changing their mind and not doing what they said they would do. But God is not like man. He is not like man. Numbers 23 and verse 19, we read, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. It is impossible for him to lie. Impossible for him not to fulfill his promises. And thus, his word is to be wholeheartedly trusted. This is what will be the focus of our attention this morning. And it will result in great encouragement to all of God's people. This morning, the title of the sermon is The Anchor of the Soul. Looking at this text in Hebrews chapter 6, we turn again to our study through Hebrews. And as we look to this passage, verses 13 through 20, we'll see there are three interrelated points that we'll study in this passage this morning. The first one will be the promise. And we're going to see that in verses 13 through 15. We'll also see the oath. That again, we'll revisit verse 13 and we'll go into verses 16 and 17. And then we'll see the hope in verses 18 through 20. The promise, the hope. I mean, excuse me, the promise, the oath, and the hope. Let's begin with the first one, the promise. Looking at verses 13 through 15 this morning, perhaps the longest point this morning. So if it goes a bit and you start checking your watch, it may be the longest point that we have. This word promise is repeated three times in our passage this morning. It is in verse 13, verse 15, and verse 17. And as we begin to look at this word promise, we need to see that it is connected to what was previously said in verses 11 and 12. So I want to read to you as you look to your Bibles, I want to begin back in verse 11 and read this together from verse 11 through 15. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Here we have a, a word of exhortation, and we have a word of encouragement here. We looked at verses 11 and 12 last week and saw that exhortation not to be sluggish, not to be lazy in our faith. 
The writer of Hebrews here exhorts his audience to be imitators of those who through their faith they had patience to inherit the promises. By the way, he revisits this topic later in length in chapter 11. But here in chapter 6, he points directly to Abraham as the one who waited patiently and obtained the promise. He speaks of when God made a promise to Abraham when he said, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, perk up your ears. Because when we hear of Abraham, we think, oh man, he lived a long time ago. And though he did surely live a long time ago, the promise God made to him then has everything to do with us now. So tune in. We would do well to listen to A.W. Pink, to his counsel about this. He says, quote, it behooves us if we value our souls to examine closely the scriptural account of the nature and character of Abraham's faith, end quote. I think I'm pretty safe to assume that we all value our souls. And since we value our souls, it would be wise for us to heed Pink's counsel here and to examine Abraham's life. Yes, Abraham lived a long time ago, roughly 4,000 years ago. In the opening book of the Bible, the life of Abraham is covered in 14 chapters, beginning at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis with the birth of Abram, ran all the way through chapter 25 and the death of Abraham. By the way, if you have begun our 2024 reading plan, you just got into this story. A couple of this began, maybe if you're going Monday through Friday, Thursday, we got into that. It'll continue into next week. And by the way, yes, his name was changed. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, from father of nation to father of many nations. He also changed his wife Sarai's name to Sarah, meaning princess. And the central theme of Genesis is the promises made to Abraham. I want to begin by looking at these together with you this morning. So hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 6 and flip all the way back to the beginning, Genesis. So flip your Bibles to Genesis. We'll pick up in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12... We see a promise made by God. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's promise. But if we flip over just a few pages to chapter 18, we see it promised again. In chapter 18, if you look to verse 17 and 18, 
Genesis 18, beginning verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Promises stated again. But we're not done. Flip over to the right again and get to chapter 22. Chapter 22, Genesis 22, beginning in, again, verse 17, and reading through verse 18. We read, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. It is these promises to Abraham in Genesis that drive God's redemptive story throughout all of Scripture. If you flip back to chapter 3, so you're out of order here, I know. Go back to chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. The Lord says something incredible to the serpent in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It is these promises to Abraham by which the offspring of the woman will triumph over the serpent. It is through this offspring of Abraham that blessing is promised to the entire world. You know, it's in the New Testament. I'll give you a little spoiler, but it's a good one. The New Testament tells us, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's Galatians 3.16. All of these promises pointed to Jesus. And I better stop because before I get way ahead of our text, let me return to Abraham's life. These promises given to Abraham, they had to be received by faith. God promised him a, a homeland. He, he pro promised him an innumerable number of descendants. And he promised him that he would be a blessing to many nations of the earth. And yet, at 75 years old, it was when God tells this aging man to go from his home country, to leave his father's home, and to go into the land that God would show him. How do you like those directions? How about some more details? Maybe, maybe a little bit more? But he had to receive the promises by faith. God promised to make Abram a great nation and that in him all nations of the earth shall be blessed. But the only problem is at the age of 75 years old, he was childless. And his wife was barren and beyond the point of giving him any children. So how could he become a great nation with innumerable descendants when he didn't even have one child. 
we see what seems to be this reality setting in for him in Genesis chapter 15. Flip over to 15. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, we see Abram speak, and starting in verse 2, it says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, now pause for a moment right here. It was obvious that Abram was struggling to believe what God had promised. But God is gracious. And God gave Abram needed encouragement to believe. So let's keep reading here in Genesis 15. Pick it up in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I mean, that last line is so important. He believed the Lord. He trusted God. And by believing, believing the word of God, it was counted to him as righteousness. But Abram was still a man, a man who struggled with doubt. And years had passed and still no child. And now around 86 years of age, his wife comes to him with a plan. And she says to him, and asked him to take her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and to have a child with her. Now we're speaking of a man of faith. A man that we just read believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so how should he respond when Sarai presents him with this idea? What should he say? Well, we see his answer in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. It says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, in most marital situations, we'd say that's pretty good counsel. Listen to your wife. <laughs> but first, listen to the Lord. At age 86, Abram has and fathers a son through Hagar and calls him, names him Ishmael. Now we need to realize this. We have no ability in our own to fulfill God's promises in our own strength or our own ways. Abram had no business about trying to fulfill God's promises his own way. His actions were a result of a continued battle with doubt. But God is gracious. And 13 years later, at 99 years old, the Lord appears to Abram and makes a covenant with him and reaffirms the promise of a child. It's during this exchange in Genesis chapter 17 that God changes Abram's name to Abraham and tells him that he shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
Abraham needed the encouragement of God. He needed the encouragement of God to strengthen his weak faith. And God continues to remind him about his faithfulness to his promises. And it's God's continual reminders about his word and his promise that helps Abraham grow in faith. That his faith would be strengthened. That he would learn to trust God. And that he would finally receive the promised child, Isaac. And it's in Genesis chapter 21 that we read that God opens Sarah's womb, and at 100 years old, Abraham fathers Isaac. God would fulfill his promise in only the way that God could do it. Only the way that it would be known that this is the work in the mighty hand of God. That only God is to receive all the honor and the glory for what he has done. And Abraham at this point knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that God has done what he has promised. Yet this isn't the end of the story for Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, God commands Abraham to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. <laughs> the promised one son that would come to him is now to be offered up, to sacrifice to God. And from his history of doubting God, one would think that there would be no way that Abraham would obey God at this point. But God had encouraged his faith. He knew that God was faithful and that God promised to make him a father of many nations. And he saw God's work in giving him this son, and so he obeyed God. And by seeing Abraham's faith, by his obedience to offer up Isaac, God provides a ram to be offered up instead of Isaac. And in response, if you flip over to Genesis chapter 22, in response to Abraham's act of faith, look at what we read in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17, the latter half of verse 16. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, now pause right there because right there ties us right back into Hebrews chapter six. So if you held your place there, Go ahead and flip back to Hebrews chapter 6. What we just read in Genesis chapter 22 is cited in verse 14. And then the writer of Hebrews continues and attaches to that in verse 15 and says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You know, the, the author of Hebrews is pointing to the fact that though Abraham had overcome great obstacles, and, and though he had struggles with doubt on many occasions, he received God's promise. And, and just like the original recipients of this letter of Hebrews, we too face seasons of doubt. The writer says, look at the example 
of Abraham. He learned to trust God through those seasons, through those hard seasons. And the encouragement comes through that you will as well. That it's in those seasons that God will bring encouragement, that he is the one that has begun the good work and he is the one that will complete it. And that he will sustain you. And he'll bring his work to completion. For all of our doubt and weaknesses and failures, we have an example to follow in Abraham. And so be encouraged, beloved, and press on in the faith. Now, building upon this point, we now turn our attention to the second point, the oath. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, I want to cover again verse 13. We didn't speak about this earlier. And then we'll jump ahead to verses 16 and 17. Looking at Hebrews 6, 13, we read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then picking up this in verse 16, the author continues and says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And like a promise, an oath is a type of commitment. But an oath carries a higher level of significance as it involves invoking a higher authority to bear witness of one's words. I spoke earlier about the things people say when they want someone to know they are telling the truth. Maybe you've heard someone say, I swear to God. Which, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses this. This is not a good practice for us. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But you've heard this, right? People will even invoke the name of God. And in swearing to God, they are not only appealing to him as a witness, but they are calling upon him as an avenger of perjury in the case they speak falsely. I mean, think about a courtroom. The judge administers an oath in order to uphold the truth. At one time, this oath may have been something like, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. By invoking the name of God, there's understanding that if they fail to tell the truth, they risk divine judgment. And in ancient time, to take an oath was to seal one's word with one's very own life. You know, it's interesting that following Abraham's act of faith and offering up Isaac, when God reaffirms the promised Abraham that we read in verse 13, that since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then again here in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Well, what is going on here? This is really interesting. Because God comes to Abraham in human terms and swears an oath. You know, when people were to practice this and to, to swear an oath, it was to accentuate the certainty of their words. That they're swearing by someone or something that is greater than themselves. Those in Israel would practice this and they would say, as surely as Yahweh lives, that was them taking an oath. Because Yahweh was greater 
than them and is greater than them. But God has no one greater than himself. There is no being in heaven or on earth greater than God. He alone possesses all perfections, and he alone is infinitely perfect in all of them. And so he is the definition of greatness. There is no one greater than him by whom he could swear by. Thus he swore by himself, by, according to his own name. And in so doing, he, God placed his own dignity and character on the line when it came to fulfilling this promise that he made to Abraham. But if you're following along and you're still tracking with me and what we're going through, it, it begs a question here. It begs the question, why would he guarantee his promise with an oath? I mean, God is infallibly trustworthy. Think about it. It is impossible for him to lie. So why is his promise not enough? We read that in verse 17 of Hebrews 6, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. God desired to encourage Abraham's faith as well as everyone else of faith. So he chose to go to great lengths to encourage all of our trust in his promise. He wanted us to hold fast to the absolute certainty of his promise. His swearing of an oath was given because of the weakness of our faith. Think about that for a moment. It was so Abraham would not fall prey to doubt and unbelief ever again. And the same is true for us. God swore an oath so that we would be doubly sure of his promise and would never doubt him. We are included in the heirs of promise. The author of Hebrews has already referred back in chapter 2 to believers in Jesus being the offspring of Abraham. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The Apostle Paul in Romans 4 refers to Abraham as the father of our faith. And as the father of our faith, all those of faith are his offspring. Real quick, flip over to Romans chapter 4. We pick up this subject of Abraham once again as we talk about faith. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 24, we read in Romans 4, speaking of Abraham, it says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Why did God do all this? Why did he give an oath? It was because he desired to encourage our faith. Think about this. It's God's sovereign will that we have full expectation of him fulfilling his word. This means that this oath that he swore to Abraham was meant for us, to strengthen us in our faith. Now, Abraham may have been the, the recipient of the promise, but we are its objects. When God took Abraham out beneath the dark sky and pointed to the countless specks of light in the sky, he was pointing to us. God promised Abraham descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in Christ Jesus, we are those descendants. We are those of the nations blessed through him. It is through faith in this promised offspring, who is Christ, that we become God's children and heirs of the promise. What does this mean? It means that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, for forgiveness of sin, you can be absolutely certain of salvation. How certain? Complete certainty. No margin for doubt that this is what God has promised. God promised it, and he secured it with an oath. This leads us to our final point this morning, which is this hope. It's the hope. And we see this in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here the author speaks of two unchangeable things. This is God's word or God's promise and also God's oath. There is surety in God's word. Why? He cannot lie. Can, can we get that to sink in? Like if God says it, he will fulfill it. He cannot lie. His word alone is sufficient for faith. But out of his grace, he adds an oath to encourage us on human terms of his absolute faithfulness to do what he has promised. It is we who have fled for refuge who this has been done for. 
You know, in the Old Testament, God made merciful provision for anyone who unintentionally killed another person. There were appointed cities where they could take refuge. But our sin is far greater. We have rebelled and sinned against a holy God. And yet, he mercifully offers us refuge in his son. It is Jesus, the son of God, who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Those who have fled for refuge are those who have believed the gospel. It refers to those who have trusted in Jesus and his finished work. It refers to those who come to Christ and turn from the world. It refers to finding salvation and security in Jesus alone. It refers to those who were once enemies of God, but have now become reconciled through Christ. It refers to those who might ask this question, what must I do to be saved? To whom the answer is, flee for refuge and lay hold of the hope set before us, as the writer of Hebrews pen. Speaking of this hope, look at verses 19 and 20. We read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what exactly is this hope that is spoken about here? Well, it goes back to those two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath. We have great hope that God does exactly what he says he will do every time without fail. We have this promise that what God promises will come to fruition. And that for us, a great salvation, as the author of Hebrews puts it, will come through the offspring, the promised offspring. And that promised offspring has come. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now I'm looking out and you all look really good on the outside. But we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why he came into the world to save sinners just like us, that God has faithfully sent us a Savior. It is God's promise, it is the oath that he took that all pointed to Christ. Salvation in Christ. It is Christ who is the anchor of the soul. In all the tossing around that we go through, all the doubts and all the fears that we face, that all those things that would cause us to drift until ultimate devastation and destruction, those would all happen if it weren't for this anchor. 
Think about the same way that a, a ship is held by an anchor to secure it, to protect it from running ashore during storms. That we have a better anchor. One that keeps our hope secure. And much like a ship that is tethered to an anchor, the Christian is tethered to their ankle, anchor, which is Christ Jesus. We are tethered to him. Think of sailors. Sailors' anchors descend downward to the bottom of the sea. But what we read here in Hebrews chapter 6 is the Christian's anchor has ascended into heaven. He has gone upward. And we are now, all of us who have faith in Christ, tethered to him. Which means no one can pluck us out of his hand. Jesus, our hope, has entered the inner place behind the curtain. The curtain refers to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies in the tabernacle. The inner place refers to the holies of holies itself, and it represents the presence of God. It was the place in which only the high priest could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. But it is where Christ is now. Every moment. It's this Jesus who came to earth to live and die for us. And when he returned to heaven, it was also for our sake. As our anchor, now secured in heaven, we have a cable of salvation that can never be broken. It can never be destroyed and it can never be lost. It is sure and it is steadfast. The promise of salvation. Heaven awaits us. As we read in verse 20, we read it is where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This word forerunner speaks of Jesus. He is the forerunner. And he's only spoken of this way here in Hebrews chapter 6. Nowhere else in Scripture. He has gone on our behalf. It's referring to his role as our representative in the presence of the Father. And he intercedes for forgiveness on the basis of his sacrificial death. But also as our forerunner, as the one who goes before us, he leads his people. He goes before them, preparing a way for them to follow. Some very comforting words of Jesus in John chapter 14. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Is this Jesus who, having become a high priest forever, by entering God's presence, by offering his own blood to secure access for all believers, that is our hope. He is our hope. It's his atoning work on the cross that ensures our hope. His priestly office is after the order of Melchizedek which will be fully addressed in the next chapter, chapter 7. For now, we have the promise. We have the oath. 
and we have, excuse me, we have the promise, the oath, and the hope to fill our hearts and minds with the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Our hope, our great salvation in Christ Jesus is a sure and steadfast hope. God has promised it. He has made an oath and Christ is the fulfillment and now is in heaven as our anchor and where he goes, we too shall go. This is great and glorious news that we are tethered to him. And that reality, my friend, should strengthen our faith in him. Do you ever feel like you're being tossed to and fro? The world and things of the world are coming at you. Think about a boat that has a strong anchor that though the winds come and blow and the waves crash, that boat stays there. We have a greater anchor in Christ. That though we feel the storm tossing us to and fro, we are anchored to him. We are tethered. I love the encouragement that the period in Samuel... Rutherford gives about our hope. He says, quote, our hope is not hung upon such an untwisted thread as I imagine so, or it is likely. Our salvation is fastened with God's own hand and Christ's own strength to the strong stake of God's unchangeable nature, end quote. In like fashion, our Kent Hughes encourages with this. He says, quote, there is no more possibility of God's promises failing us than of God falling out of heaven. His word is eternally sealed with the double surety of promise and oath, end quote. So my question to you this morning is, do you have this hope? Are you sure of this great salvation that we speak of that is in Christ Jesus. Have you trusted in Jesus alone for it? And if you haven't, what are you waiting for? Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. And for the rest of us who have trusted in him, by God's grace, we have this blessed hope and believe me when I say this, beloved, we will hold fast to the anchor because it shall never be removed. Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we are unworthy to be recipients of your love, your goodness, your mercy, your grace. And God, in acknowledging that once again, we give you all praise and glory and honor for you are good. And Father, we thank you for your continual encouragement to our souls. We thank you for constantly pointing us to your son Christ that when he said it is finished, he meant it. Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to rejoice in the sure and steadfast hope that we have. That though difficulty may come and there may be seasons of doubt, that for all who believe that they are tethered to Christ who is in heaven and where he has gone before us, he will take us.
Father, we thank you for this great hope. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me close with some very encouraging words from our Savior. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, our Savior says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But encouraging words from our Lord.